had to write this story because of what I was going through. I didn't know what else to write about. I knew that I couldn't write around my mental illness. I had to write through it and figure out a way to use what was happening to me to, to, to put something out there in the world that could do good. Today on Arts and Letters, we'll be talking with Prince Award-winning writer and National Book Award finalist, John Corey Whaley. His YA novel, Highly Illogical Behavior, published by Dial Books, an imprint of Penguin Random House, is about teenager Solomon Reed, who suffers from agoraphobia. When you're writing for teenagers, when you're writing for young people, or really when you're writing about them, I write for anyone who wants to read it, but I'm writing about young people. When you're doing that, you do have a responsibility, and my editor and I talk about this. There is a responsibility to create empathy, but there's also a responsibility to create hope, because so much of the world doesn't do that. John Corey Whaley and Highly Illogical Behavior on Arts and Letters. From the studios of KUAR in Little Rock, I'm Jay Bradley Minnick, and welcome to Arts and Letters, a program providing opportunities for the celebration of the arts and humanities. Today we'll be talking with John Corey Whaley. His young adult novel, Highly Illogical Behavior, confronts agoraphobia, mental illness, loneliness, and isolation. There's this thing that we joke about, the difference between young adult literature and adult literature is that adult literature does not have to have any hope in it. And I'm sure you know that. You can read these adult right. fiction novels that win all these awards, and they're the most depressing thing you've ever read in your life. Not always, but there's a difference there. And so I try to think about that when I'm writing. I try to think about what is it about Solomon's story or about my story that can actually benefit someone reading this. And, you know, I don't know. I try not to get bogged down with exactly what I want the book to do because there's so much joy in the surprise of it. There's so much joy and just awe in publishing a book and getting to meet your readers and getting just a firsthand reaction from them. funny thing is after three books now I've learned this crazy magic thing that happens between a writer and a reader is that when you make something really really personal sometimes that is the thing that is most personal to a stranger too and that is it's such a strange thing to happen and it's sort of to me part of what is invisibly magic about books and about reading and literature is that you can feel connected to something that maybe doesn't relate to you at all, but because it's written from the perspective of this emotional rawness, that maybe it creates this empathy that sort of builds a bridge there of understanding. Corey Whaley, and Highly Illogical Behavior on Arts and Letters. John Corey Whaley, former teacher, writer, award winner, welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy we could do this, Corey, because we have been trying to do this for how long? A year, maybe, I think. <laughs> I'm very happy. Years since I think I talked to you in the Barnes and Noble, um, and this is this is your third novel, right? That's right. Tell us a little just about the first two novels. I know the second one was up for the National Book Award, Noggin, but just just tell us a little about your journey before we get into this one. Sure. Um, 
My first book was called Where Things Come Back. I wrote it right out of college. It's about a kid in a small Arkansas town. His brother goes missing. There's a thought-to-be-extinct woodpecker sighting, and it makes the town sort of go crazy. And it was loosely inspired by something I'm sure you're very familiar with, the ivory-billed woodpecker in Brinkley, Arkansas. And that happened in like 2005. So right after that happened, I got the idea for that book, just listening to stories and reading about this bird. And then I wrote Noggin, which was sort of about how much of an out-of-body experience it was to go from being a public school teacher in Louisiana to being an author who was touring around the country and talking about books and adolescence and missing kids and birds and all this stuff that I sort of hadn't anticipated happening from writing this little book as a 22-year-old. And the last two in particular are pretty well-informed, I think, by at least your experience as a school teacher. This one, too, I could imagine you had kids who suffered from a variety of different issues. Yeah, I, I stopped teaching school in 2011. So it was a little bit of a different time, like culturally, as far as the things that we all talk about in the open, especially with teenagers. I feel like just the last five years, we've moved leaps and bounds in the direction of adults having open, honest conversations about LGBTQ and um, mental illness and suicide prevention and all these things that for a long time we didn't really talk about with kids. And I feel like in Louisiana as a public school teacher, I was still a little bit in that world of, you know, just keep things like that to yourself. It's too political. It's too private. And so a lot of a lot of what I write about with teenagers, I think some of it was a response to just not being able to say what I wanted to say, you know, observing teenagers, but really not knowing what their full stories were. And, and that sort of thing. So, so I definitely think it, it was inspired by that, but mostly, honestly, just by all of the angst I left over from being a teenager myself. So let's hear a little bit about what it feels like to be in at least Solomon's world during a panic attack. This is how it always started. Everything would be fine, and then a sudden sinking feeling would come over him, like his chest was going to cave in. He would feel his heart bumping against his ribcage, wanting out, quickening with every beat, and then radiating down his arms and up to his temples. It vibrated him, making everything he saw bounce around like the world was just photographs being flipped in front of him. And with everything around him muffled but still noisy, all he could focus on was breathing and closing his eyes tight and counting. The panic attacks drained him, like he'd just run a marathon, so it always two, took a little while to recover. So he lay there in the dark without his parents ever knowing he wasn't okay, because he had learned a long time ago that the better they thought he was, the longer he could live this way. read any other YA books that kind of dealt with agoraphobia, which is the fear of going outside. And Solomon, he's plagued by panic attacks, being in and out of control. What inspired that or what kind of helped uh, inform writing in that way? Because you really are able to get inside the real feeling that it is to be out of control, A, B, the sense of a panic attack, and C, you kind of rationalize how he feels about agoraphobia. So I'm just kind of wondering what informed that. Yeah, you know, honestly, I I turned 30 and uh, sort of my anxiety did a one-two punch on me. I'd had panic attacks a few years before, went to therapy, dealt with it, moved on. It wasn't really a big deal. Honestly, because of the history of mental illness on both sides of my family, I figured by adulthood I would have something that needed to be medicated anyway, just because of such a strong history in my family. But this was um, very surprising. And at 30, I started having panic attacks again, really bad and very frequently. And and it started driving me um, to be really antisocial, as anxiety does. And so I found myself staying home all the time. I had roommates, they never saw me. I would just stay in my room all the time. And And I started realizing like, why am I hiding from the world with this illness? Why am I just not talking to people about it? 
and just being honest and things like that. And so it really, I thought for probably over the course of a year about what I needed to say and what story I needed to tell and how I could use this sudden sort of um, experience with debilitating mental illness, how I could use that to tell a good story, to tell something unique and tell something that could actually speak to young people. And then I realized that maybe if I made it a little more extreme and I just had a main character who was a full-on agoraphobic, who was so terrified and disturbed and worried about his own panic disorder that he just decides that his only cure is to stay inside forever and stay away from the world that makes him feel that way. And so, yeah, I mean, honestly, it wasn't a far reach. Solomon Reed never needed to leave the house anyway. He had food, he had water, he could see the mountains from his bedroom window, and his parents were so busy all the time that he pretty much got to be sole ruler of the house. So by the time he turned 16, he hadn't left the house in three years, two months, and one day. He was pale and chronically barefoot, and it worked. It was the only thing that ever had. Lord knows when you stop Arts and Letters. We're listening to author John Corey Whaley talk about his book, Highly Illogical Behavior. We'll be back in a moment. Let's return to our conversation with author John Corey Whaley talking about his book, Highly Illogical Behavior. Solomon Reed did his schoolwork online, usually finishing it before his parents were home every evening with bedhead and pajamas on. If the phone rang, he'd let it go to voicemail. And on rare occasions that someone knocked on the door, he would look through the peephole until whoever it was, a Girl Scout, a politician, or maybe a neighbor, would get up and leave. How much do you love me if you had to say Solomon lived in the only world that would have him. And even though it was quiet and mundane and sometimes lonely, it never got out of control. made the decision to seclude himself from the world lightly, and it should be said that he at least tried to make it out there for as long as possible, for as long as anyone like him could. Then one day, in sixth grade, trying wasn't enough. So he stripped down to his boxers and sat in the fountain in front of his junior high school. And right there, with his classmates and teachers watching, with the morning sun blinding him, he slowly leaned back until his entire body was underwater. That was the last time Solomon Reed went to Upland Junior High, and within a matter of days, he started refusing to go outside altogether. It was better that way.
were you imagining that by sharing this kind of experience with kids in particular that they might know they're not alone and that it would help them? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that that's part of it. You know, I'm going to be selfish and say part of it was I had to write this story because of what I was going through. I didn't know what else to write about. I knew that I couldn't write around my mental illness. I had to write through it and figure out a way to use what was happening to me to, to, to put something out there in the world that could do good. You're listening to Arts and Letters. Let's return to author John Corey Whalen as he talks about his book, Highly Illogical Behavior. This is a kid who's suffering from some pretty intense problems, but he's pretty logical and he's very smart and he's able to recognize where he is and his relationship to his illness. And you would think, and I think his parents would think that he would be really lonely, but he seems not to be as lonely as one might imagine, or at least he convinces himself he isn't. Yeah, you know, I think that was part of the struggle when I went to write this. I thought, okay, I'm not going to give him any siblings, and I'm going to have him be agoraphobic. His parents are at work all day, and he is in this house by himself. What in the hell is he going to do all the time? That was my biggest concern when I started the book was, what is he going to do? But, you know, everyone has a computer, everyone has a phone, everyone has... Netflix and all that stuff. And so I realized that it would be pretty easy to isolate yourself in the modern world. And so I wanted to speak a little bit to that and how easy it was for him to take those steps to isolate himself. But also it's supposed to speak to the parents a little bit too. Some of my best friends are my parents and I, there's no shame about it. They were when I was a kid too. And it's something I, I feel really blessed and lucky about. And so I kind of want to write about that sometimes. You get a lot of really bad parents in young adult fiction, really terrible parents. And if I can just share my experience of having really good parents, they're not perfect, but they have faults, just like Solomon's. But I feel like it's a little bit of my responsibility as a storyteller to also let teenagers and anyone know that not all parents are terrible and not all of them are neglectful or, or ignorant or stuck in the past and all of that. So that was part of it too. He's afraid of society, but he's not antisocial. life just hands you the lemonade straight up in a chilled glass with a little slice of lemon on top. For Lisa Prater, junior and straight-A student at Upland High, meeting Solomon Reed's mother was that glass of lemonade, and it was going to change her life. You may have known Elisa Prater at some point. She was the girl sitting at the front of your classroom, raising her hand to answer every single question the teacher asked. She stayed after school to work on the yearbook, and as soon as she got home, she dove headfirst into her homework. She'd always been one to keep a packed schedule, choosing at age 11 to live by the words of her great-aunt Dolores, who said, Not a day on your calendar should ever be empty. It's bad luck. 24 hours of wasted opportunity. Tell us about the structure of this. I found this to be a highly illogical but logical structure because you write from a limited third person and then you alternate chapters between Solomon Reed and Lisa. It's a pretty complex architecture. You know, that's nice of you to say. I just didn't know how else to do it. So I wrote the book the first time in three first-person point-of-view chapters. 
it didn't really work. So when it came time to rewrite the book, my editor and I work really closely together. Her name is Nomada Tripathi. I call her Nami. And she's amazing and um, brilliant. And basically, she reads a draft of a book. We have a really long discussion about it before even notes are given or anything. And in that conversation, she said, will you hate me if I ask you to write it in third person? And I was like, uh, I might hate myself. So then I did. And rewriting it was really when I realized how much fun I could have with the voice and how I could still use a third person narrator to feel personal when I needed it to feel personal, but to feel just distant enough when I needed that too for different parts of the story and different moments when you're exploring these characters' personalities and their behaviors and actions. Sometimes it's important to be really close to that. Sometimes it's important to take a couple steps back from that and see how it looks in a broader sense and what the implications are to everyone else. And so part of it was just figuring out who am I when I'm telling this story? I'm not John Corey Whaley author. Who am I? And so the way I tricked myself into doing it was I pretended to be, when I was writing Solomon's chapters, it was Solomon telling his own story in third person. That's how I kind of figured I could have very personal things in there, but there's still a distance that's created. And that's kind of what I did with Lisa as well. Chasing secrets only we know. Taking the back roads home. And getting messed alone. The years have gone by. Solomon. You don't know me, and I doubt you've ever even heard of me, but my name is Lisa Prater and I want to be your friend. I know that sounds ridiculous, but I also know that you can't go through life never pursuing what it is you really want. And for whatever reason, at this time in my life, right now, I want to be your friend. I saw you that last day you went to school. I saw you and I was scared for you. And if you're still even reading this, I want you to know that I spent years trying to figure out just why that boy jumped into the fountain that morning at Upland Junior High. I bet, at the very least, you could use a little conversation from someone who doesn't know what the word escrow means. Sincerely, Lisa Prater. degree does he need friendship? I think the story tells us that. I think we realize that even if it's not perfect, even if it's messed up and complicated, like all friendships are, that you can't isolate yourself away from, from the world and other people. You can, but you're missing out on a lot of things. And I think that that part of the message is, is just that. I think it's about him not realizing that maybe I'm happy here, Maybe I never need to leave my house. I got my mom, my dad, my grandma comes and visits. Everything's fine. But when he meets these people, when he actually makes friends for the first time, he realizes the reason why people leave their house, the reason why we go out, and what, what life can offer him that he's missing out on. There's this scene where Lisa's talking with her boyfriend, Clark, and she doesn't really want to reveal the fact that she has this ulterior motive and she plans to get into school in a kind of devious way. And Clark is kind of laid back about it. One evening, Lisa brings up with Clark the idea about going to college and Clark really doesn't know what he wants. Lisa's so driven. So, you know, they're mismatched a little bit in that way. So let's right. listen to that scene. People are strange, aren't they? 
Is that why you're so dead set on fixing us all? Not you. You're good like you are. Thanks. So, Woodlaw? Woodlawn. Yeah, that. Uh, can you get in it? With my eyes closed. So, what do you have to do? An essay or something? Yeah, my personal experience with mental illness. Shouldn't be too hard. No, it has to be unique. It has to be the best one they read. Maybe the best one they've ever read. They give one scholarship a year. Full ride. And she knew exactly what she was going to write about. It had practically hit her over the head. She just needed to find Solomon, charm him, and counsel him back to health. Then she'd record it all in her essay to Woodlawn and be well on her way to securing her place among the greatest psychological minds of the 21st century. They'd be naming a building after me by the time I had grandkids. But she'd need to get started if she wanted a guaranteed success. You write later that Lisa would need several months with Solomon to make the kind of progress she wanted. I mean, she's attacking this like a huge epic project for her. And it is because if she succeeds, she believes she'll get into school, although she hasn't thought it out very well. And the thing, too, is that all of this is based on a huge misconception of Lisa's, which is that mental illness can be cured in the first place. She's very naive about the things she wants to do. And it's a very immature way to look at something like mental illness, which is so complicated. It's a very illogical way to look at it. And so that is really her biggest mistake, you know, coupled with what she's doing and her own motivations. It's that she's signing on for something that's impossible, too. And her own misconceptions and with all the research she's done, with all the reading and all of her desire to be, you know, a professional in this field, she's not understanding that it's not about entering someone's life and fixing them. You don't fix someone with mental illness. She's pretty deliberate about the way she ramps up seeing him. She starts with the letter and then she gives him a call, right? Right. On the phone. She's bold. She is bold. So this is a big step for him. It's big. And it's, you know, that's the thing is because it's not first person, the actions of these characters have to speak much louder than, than the thoughts do sometimes. And so you're right. Like him just answering that phone, him taking that call is a huge step for someone who won't even answer the door when someone knocks on it. Hello? Solomon, is that you? Did you get my letter? Hello? Are you there? Here. Hello? Here. I got your letter. Thank you. You're welcome. I hope it didn't, like, freak you out too bad or anything. Just a little. Not too much. Anyway, I'm sorry to call like this, but I just wanted to confirm that you got the letter and that you know I'm totally okay with whatever you decide. I will say this, though. I am a hell of a friend. You know what? I'm... Sorry, I shouldn't have called. I have obviously caught you at a bad time. Would you like to call later, or... Can you come over Wednesday? Meet me, oh, meet me there. Yeah, meet me, oh, meet me there. All to feel about Lisa. Okay, so Lisa is such a difficult character, and she was difficult to write, she is very difficult to read, and so many people hate her. I have so many teenagers come up to me at events and say, what is Lisa's problem? But first of all, my job is not to write likable characters. My job is to write realistic characters and to tell stories that I think can somehow universally touch on something all of us know, something all of us know or want to know or desire or are confused about all those things. And so when it comes to a character like Lisa, I knew that she was going to be a really hard pill to swallow for a lot of readers. Um, But if you just stick it out with her, if you just try to put yourself in her shoes for a a little bit of the story and realize that just like Solomon, she just is trying to find a way to break free from something that, that has her trapped. She's just trying to find a way to get out any way that she can. And her house, her cage is the town. It's the suburbs of Los Angeles that she hates. 
and she wants to leave. She wants to do this great thing. And so I think it's really easy to dislike ambitious people. I think it's really easy in literature to dislike ambitious women. And I think that says a lot about how we read things. And so I really wanted to explore this idea that she could be so dead set on accomplishing this thing for herself, but what complicates it even further is that getting what she wants means really helping someone else. And so how does that muddy the waters? And, and to me, that's how real people are. Real people are so dynamically complicated and confusing. And it was just really important that she not come off as likable or not likable, but leave you wondering. This is Arts and Letters. We're listening to John Corey Whaley talk about his book, Highly Illogical Behavior. We'll be back in a moment. Let's return to our conversation with author John Corey Whaley, talking about his book, Highly Illogical Behavior. That's odd, <laughs> but we'll leave it there. And Lisa says, you know what? I'm sorry, I shouldn't have called. I obviously caught you at a bad time. Would you like to call later or? Can you come over Wednesday? So help us with this. That's bold on Solomon's part. It is, and it's supposed to be surprising. And I think it is at that point in the story. You're surprised that he, he doesn't want to just talk to her, that he wants to see her, and that for whatever reason, his interest is piqued that this person wants to be his friend. Lisa, she does research on agoraphobia and learns everything she can so that she's ready in some way to cure him. Yeah. Lisa spent her free period in the school library reading up on agoraphobia. She knew a little already, how it's pretty much a result of panic disorder. In Solomon's room, with its bright, white, empty walls, Solomon took a seat on the edge of his bed and watched as Lisa walked around, inspecting his bookshelves and the tchotchkes he had scattered around on his desk. She was trying to be nonchalant, but it was hard to do with him watching her like that. You like to read, I see. That is the time. Yeah, I guess it would. Lisa, can I ask you something? Sure. Why are you here? to be your friend, but you're going to have to be a little more talkative to keep up with me. Sorry, I'm not really sure what to talk about. By most people's standards, Solomon was a pretty weird kid. There was the agoraphobic thing, sure, but there were other things, too. He had impossibly weird eating habits, refusing to eat anything green, without exception, and having substantial fear of coconut. Guess it was my birthday. Cold walls, still the same. Emptiness for 
Most days he walked around half-clothed with a persistent case of bedhead and a red line across his stomach where he'd rested the edge of his laptop while he did his schoolwork or streamed movies online. Solomon wondered if he'd ever have his own bills to pay. He didn't plan on ever leaving the house again. Ever. You call this highly illogical behavior. Why that title? Well, I think the title is supposed to just point you to every character in the story, and everyone is doing something that could seem highly, you know, illogical. He didn't miss much about the outside world. Target sometimes, with its organized shelves and relaxing department store music. Oh, and he really missed the way it smelled outside when it was about to rain. And the way the heavy drops would feel on his skin. Water calmed him down. He didn't know why, but it helped. And so here is one of your reveals. You suggest how important water is in Solomon's life. Yeah, you know, I right. think a big part of it is I, I grew up around water. I grew up going camping all summer, spending most of the day in a lake or a river. And if I was home in the summer, I'd be at a friend's pool. And so water for me was always a real source of joy and comfort, but also as a really high-strung neurotic kid, like calm. And so I just sort of went from there and decided to make it part of this story because it was a That's... thing not just for me, but for someone else I knew who dealt with anxiety as a teenager. You want to start by explaining these walls? It looks like a hospital room in here. I just like it that way, I guess. Minimalist. Very trendy right now. I think maybe it's because I'm inside so much. I guess I like the idea of my room seeming endless or something. I like that. Or maybe you could just imagine whatever you want in here. No, that's what the garage is for. All right, we can't end this interview without talking about the holodeck. Let's talk about the holodeck. And of course, this suggests the cover of the book, too, in the garage. But it's his world. So for those of us who don't remember Star Trek Next Generation or the holodeck, maybe you could explain that to us and then talk about what Solomon creates in his own world to represent that world. I'll try not to butcher this because I am not a true blue Trekkie. And so there's a lot of pressure well, when right. it comes <laughs> to talking about these things in public and in media right. because true blue Trekkies will attack you on Twitter. <laughs> I'm just kidding. They'll appreciate that I'm aware of it, I think. So basically, on the Starship Enterprise in the next generation, there is a room called the holodeck. And in the holodeck, it's, it's a room that's basically black walls, black floor, black ceiling, and it's got this sort of yellow grid all over it. And what happens in the holodeck is you tell the computer where you want to be, and it takes you there. It's like virtual reality, basically. So the captain, he likes horseback riding. I remember that being part of Star Trek Next Generation. And so Captain Picard oftentimes will go to the holodeck, and he'll be like in a field riding a horse or whatever. And you can go simulate battles there. You can go sit in a field, blah, blah, blah. So a holodeck is just a place where your, your imagination can sort of build itself around you. So Solomon creates his own holodeck right. in the garage. Right. So Solomon, um, you know, he gets his dad, who is a set builder in Hollywood. He gets his dad to help him convert their garage into a holodeck. And of course, it doesn't do anything. It's just black walls, black ceiling, black roof, and yellow tape in a grid pattern but it's there and Solomon he just has it as sort of his his room to go and be in and be geeky in but um he kind of jokes with Lisa about the importance of this room because it's kind of a silly thing and he's very aware of that again a real issue of trust I'm surprised he trusts Lisa as much as he does but he does and he tells her about this place that he goes. And I, I find that really touching because, you know, it's within the privacy of his privacy. This is the place he goes. This yes. is his escape.
few minutes later, as he opened the door that led from the laundry room into the garage, he looked at Lisa with a very serious expression and then let the door slowly open and stood to one side. She stepped through the threshold and he watched her without saying a word. The entire garage had been painted a deep, solid black and was covered with a bright yellow grid. It was one of the strangest things Lisa had ever seen and she had no idea what she was looking at. Have you ever seen Star Trek The Next Generation? A couple of times. My boyfriend watches it. I sort of wish everyone on Earth had Patrick Stewart's voice. Your lips to God's ears. She shut the door behind her to find that even it had been painted to match the pattern of the room. Square after square of blackness, highlighted with these intersecting beams that covered not just the walls, but also the ceiling. You used to always say things like people are sheep. We don't want to be around you unless you are unique. And calling people posers if they had the shirt but not the board. Living at your parents' house, maybe you should cut the cord. Not everybody grew up like you. Some of us have blinders on, don't know what to do. Maybe we put them on all on our own. Or maybe we just borrowed them from our parents' soul. I want from you now. This is my version of a hollow day. On the show, well, on several versions of Star Trek, they use a room like this for simulated reality. Training, to solve puzzles, things like that. It's nice, right? She was caught a little off guard that he was suddenly speaking to her so casually, the nerves in his voice barely noticeable anymore. As someone who worked very hard to get the things I wanted in life, this was a level of devotion that I could appreciate. You know, he goes to this room and he just uses his imagination to sort of escape from the world. But showing Lisa, there's so much trust there immediately. And that was on purpose. I wanted the reader to be surprised by Solomon's actions. I didn't want us to meet this sickly, sad, mopey kid who is just a stereotype of what we think mental illness looks like and sounds like and acts like, because that's not true. I have mental illness and listen to how I sound right now. I don't sound sad. So, what do you do in here? Well, I come in here, I sit down in the middle of the floor, and I just think of stuff to entertain myself. They say using your imagination makes you live longer. They do say that. So you just think stuff up and picture it happening all around you. Sure, you don't ever do that? Imagine being somewhere else? Can I try? Okay, close your eyes. Okay, now open them. Do you see it? What? We're in a field. It's so green all around us. And there's a kite in the air. You see it? Well, I can still remember all the friends in my house. Crazy some of those friends have kids with friends now. Maybe they'll be a little like me and you. All of the good with none of the bad news. What I want from you now. Sing it loud, sing it now. She looked up, seeing nothing but the same yellow squares from corner to corner. Was this guy for real? Lisa? Yeah. I'm just messing with you. Holodeck Garage wasn't a place for Solomon Reed to imagine elaborate settings and interact with fictional people or anything. It was a garage painted to look like something he loved. And that, in and of itself, was all he needed it to be. Just a place to escape. When closing his eyes wasn't enough. So it's so complicated and 
Anxiety and mental illness in general are so unique to each individual person who experiences it. Everyone experiences it a little differently than the next person. And so it was just important to, to give him to give him sort of the behavior and the personality of someone who would surprise my my readers. Is writing your holodeck? Wow. Ooh, that's good. That's a really good question. I, yeah, I think so. I think so. I think I wish it were as easy as painting my garage black with some tape. That sounds really fun. But yeah, I think so. I know that I am supposed to write stories to understand the world. I don't know much else in life as a fact, but that I do know. In some way, I'm supposed to tell stories and that's how I make sense of the world. It's really surprising that I've grown up and in telling stories, I get to talk to people who make sense of the world because of those stories or it helps them. And that is so weird and incredible, but also very humbling. You know, when you grow up dreaming about being something and I dreamed about being an author, I wanted a shelf full of my books That's that I could just see it in my head from the time I was 11 years old. And so you dream of it and then it becomes real the things that you think you wanted about it you know the things you think you wanted like oh I want to be famous and I want to be rich and I want to travel around the country well first of all two of those things don't happen one of them's really exhausting and so what you realize is that you grew up wanting to do this thing that is actually way more special than it seems superficially yeah, to answer your question, it is very much where I'm able to use my imagination to serve for something outside of myself. The second question is, could you maybe tell us a story or let us in on, you've said kids have had some interesting and profound reactions to this story. I can see why. Uh, can you tell us any stories or moments where maybe when you were able to talk about this book to to young people or even their parents, an effect that was permeable with, with you. I, I went on tour with this and I knew that I was going to be touring with a book that was way more personal than my other two books. My first book was really a mystery, really the questions focused on that. My second book was a sci-fi sort of romantic comedy, the questions focused on that. This book is about my mental illness and I knew that it was going to be personal and that I was going to be talking about my vulnerabilities and all that stuff in public. What I didn't realize is how much of that I would have to intake as well. The different readers I meet at different events and the fan mail that I get or reader mail or whatever. And um, I'll say the, the one that sticks out in my mind was one of my very first stops on my tour for Highly Logical Behavior was right outside of Chicago and I was doing an event with a few other authors. And right after, this girl came up and she had tears in her eyes. She was, they were streaming down her cheeks. And she had a friend with her and she was so nervous to talk to me. She wanted to tell me that she feels very similar to my main character and to the way that I was talking about feeling. And she deals with really severe anxiety. And, and she sort of broke down talking to me. So we kind of found a corner, her friend and I. And, we kind of talked for a little bit, for maybe 10 minutes, and I had to go, which I was pretty upset about. I wanted to spend more time with her, but I've been able to correspond with her a couple of times since, and I know that that interaction was meaningful. It was meaningful to me. I, I later found out it was meaningful to her to be able to talk about it with someone. And what I hope most of all, honestly, is that 
people just talk about what's wrong with them. Our biggest struggle with mental illness has always been removing the stigma from the culture. And we still, to this day, you can turn on the television and I promise you within half an hour, someone's gonna call someone else crazy as a joke. But it's not a joke because so many people suffer so silently. And so being able to interact with other people who, you know, they don't get to tell their stories. You know, it's young people and they're quietly living these lives that I'm writing about. Yeah, it's been, it's been really impactful. It's painful sometimes, but at the same time, I know that I'm doing this for a reason. Say what you say, keep saying it, saying it. Do what you want to, cause you're gonna do it anyway. I wanna go where no one's saying it. I wanna go where nobody knows my name. Broadcast from the studios of KUAR in Little Rock. You've been listening to Arts and Letters. Thanks for joining us. To check out past episodes, go to artsandlettersradio.org. Leave us a comment there and let us know what you've thought about the program. Thank you to actors Lori Pierce, James McMath, and Maddie Spickard as Lisa. Thank you to composer Donovan Suit of Rural War Room for the soundscape. Thank you to singer and songwriter Ryan Sauters for the beautiful songs and soundscapes. It was hard to bring you down, but when you were down, you stand before days. Thank you to Mary Ellen Cubitt and William Wagner for the story editing advice. Thank you to Adam Simon of Simon Sound for helping us to mix and for mastering the program. Thank you to Sticky's Rock and Roll Chicken Shack for keeping music alive and well in Arkansas. Thank you to Gil, Reagan, Owen, PA Little Rock, a full-service law firm focusing on the documentation and closing of business transactions, business-related litigation, employment law matters, and taxation planning. Generous funding for Arts and Letters Radio was provided by the Arkansas Humanities Council, and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Thank you to writer John Corey Whaley for his candid discussion of mental illness and for giving us a glimpse into Solomon Reed's world, a kid who's just trying to fit in to a world that for so many of us is difficult to navigate. For Arts and Letters, I'm Jay Bradley Minnick. Let's heed the words of John Corey Whaley. What he feared the most was that all this hiding had made it impossible for him to ever be found again. Arts and Letters is a production of Living the Dream Media.